So that's Matthew 22, 37. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. And if you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, once again, please would you give us a willingness to listen to you. Please would you teach us to value what you value, to long for what you value, <coughs> and to and to have uh, hearts that are aligned with you. Father, we pray that we would see that this is not a life-limiting thing, but this is the path of joy and richness and fullness of purpose. Amen. Steve Jobs' graduation or commencement address, as they call it in the States, at Stanford in 2005 has been viewed uh, tens of millions of times on YouTube. It's one of the most popular statements in our culture of work, and the ambitions and aspirations of the professional young worker today. He says, this is just the, the central bit of that speech, don't lose faith. I'm convinced the only thing that kept me going was that I loved what I did. You have got to find what you love. And that is as true for work as it is for your lovers. Your work is going to fill a large part of your life. And the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking and don't settle. And all the millennials say, Amen. <laughs> what job should you be doing? Should you stay in your current job or your current career? And how should you determine the answer to those questions as one who wants to put Jesus first, foremost, front and centre in life. That's what we're looking at. 
We could hardly be any more practical in this session. Before we consider, though, the, the specific question of how do I decide what career to pursue, we need to realise that historically this is, frankly, a very weird niche discussion to be having or even entertaining. For most people in most of history, in most places in the world, there are no choices about work. If there is work, it is to do what your mum and dad did. That's, that is what it means to be a worker. That's the only work open to you. Even in the West, it is only in the last hundred years that the concept of career <coughs> mobility existed for anybody. And I mean anybody. So had there been an internet in the 19th century, no one would have bothered inventing LinkedIn. That's the clear implication. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure they'd have bothered with Facebook, but hey, they certainly wouldn't have bothered with LinkedIn because what, what, what do you mean? change job. What? But all that's changed. And we now view choice of career as perhaps the second most important decision you'll make in life. Uh, Douglas Sherman observed that from the millennial generation, work is now a realm of self-fulfillment and optimal self-actualization. What do you mean by self-fulfillment and optimal self-actualization? What he basically means is we now approach work as a very important thing because we see it is, it is there for us to make a difference in the world and to fulfill ourselves. We, we expect our career to enable us to make a difference in the world and to fulfill ourselves. And if our career or if our current job is failing to achieve those things, then we see it as a moral duty to ditch it and to go for something else. You owe it to yourself to pursue something you love is the heart of Steve Jobs' address at Stanford. Hence, there's a, a slew of research and all this stuff. Gallup poll last year, 21% of millennials have changed job in the last year. I'm not, I'm not making value judgments here. These are just observations that our culture has moved. 21% of millennials have changed job in the last year. Only 7% of people in other age brackets have done so. Only 50% of millennials agreed they're very likely to be at the same employer in a year's time. Our generation, well, your generation, uh, <laughs> expects ex ex much more from work than any other generation ever has. And your generation is much more willing to change career or change job if they're not finding fulfillment where they are right now. Now, this isn't just an out-of-church thing. Within the church, there is also a particular language that has developed about career. Now, the language is different from the, the language that Steve Jobs used. And we don't speak about self-fulfillment in most churches. We're not that crass. Instead, the buzzword is vocational calling. But in some ways, it is as slippery a concept as evangelical. I mean, who knows what it actually means? But what it, what it comes down to, what most people mean by it is this. You have an obligation, not to yourself, to pursue self-fulfillment in your career, but you have an obligation to God to seek the career he is calling you to, where he wants you to serve. That is your vocation, your calling. Now, there is a strong theological heritage to the idea of vocation, particularly stretching back to Martin Luther, and we'll consider him in a minute. But there is huge, huge, huge confusion about what actually he meant. And there is often very little biblical basis for what's being said. 
And often good ideas are given, well, they're given a biblical imprint that they don't really deserve. And so what I want to do is, instead of uh, discussing calling and vocation and how that impacts career, I want to start <coughs> somewhere else. I want to start with where the Bible does give us clear foundations to build up from and then see where we get to from there. So we will, we will get to vocation and how you choose your career, but we're not going to start there. We will, I'll tell you where we'll land, though, just so we know where, we, where we're going. This is, this is what I think the Bible calls us to do. Seek to use all that you have to do all that you can for the glory of God and the good of others. Okay? Seek to use all that you have to do all that you can for the glory of God and the good of others. If you want a mission statement in life, you could do worse than that. Now, the first building block, the, the foundation, if you like, that I want to, to get in place is Jesus' answer when um, a teacher of the law said, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus, how do I work out what to do with my life? What's the most important thing I could be doing? And Jesus' career advice is this, if I can couch it in those terms. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, everything else hangs off these two commands. And I think once you get these clear, it lends coherence and sanity to the decisions and the discussions that we make about work and vocation. OK. Now. Let's get into some specific detail. That's the big picture. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right. Park that for one minute. Let's now think about some specifics to do with work. All work is equal. Who has heard that said in church Christian circles? Look, all work is equal. It doesn't really actually matter what you do. It is true. But I think it's a half truth. And I've looked, as I've been studying and reading and praying for this weekend, and last weekend, I came to the conclusion it is a dangerous half-truth, and I'll, I'll hope to show you why. So if you flick up 1 Corinthians 12, not 1 Corinthians 7 to start with, we'll get to there, but 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. The first thing we see is we try to work out what to do if we're going to pursue love for God and love for other people, is that there is no hierarchy of workers. 1 Corinthians 12 Verse 7, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Skip down to verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If all were one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. Now, the New Testament does not ever <coughs> specifically address uh, how should we value different secular jobs, for the reason I told you at the beginning. Nobody had the choice back then, really. But it does talk about how we should value uh, different gifts and roles in the church, which is a helpful place, therefore, to start as we as we consider these things. And what we see in 1 Corinthians 12 is there is no hierarchy of value in the church. All have different gifts, but all are equally valuable. 
And we should look to our differences, not as a way to rank ourselves. Well, I've got this gift, you've got, I, I lead a small group. I lead music from the front, whatever it is. But instead of ranking ourselves against each other, we should rejoice that our different gifts enable us to be a body with different parts that functions together. I should seek to use my particular gifts, verse 7, for the common good. In other words, we should love our neighbours by using the different gifts God has given us to serve others. We love our neighbour by using the different gifts God has given us to serve others. Now, I think the implication should be obvious, and I hope you'd agree it's not, it's certainly not a wrong application to think, oh, okay, given the Bible doesn't allow any hierarchy within the church, I think Luther and Tyndale and the theologians who built from there were right to say there's no hierarchy of workers outside the church either. Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, work as, it, as for the Lord. Tyndale um, used that beautiful language we saw earlier. You've got printed on your sheets. Luther had, uh, unsurprisingly for him, a more earthy and arresting image. The farmhand shoveling manure pleases God just as much as the priest at prayer. Only given Luther, I imagine, when he said it in German, he didn't use the word manure. Uh, um, but the same thing is true when we compare different secular jobs. True. Vicars are not more valuable to God than doctors. Doctors are not more valuable to God than accountants or retail assistants or any other particular job. Now, this should have hugely important implications for our sense of identity. You've got to be nuanced when you think about work and identity, because the Bible is very happy to speak about our work as an identity. So Peter is the fisherman, Levi, the tax collector. So to say work is not your identity, I'm afraid, is not what the Bible teaches. But the truth is we all have lots of identities. I am husband, father, son, brother, vicar, grieving England rugby fan, <laughs> unreconstructed coffee snob and pizza fanatic. I have lots of different identities. And work is important to your identity, but it is not fundamental. If you are a follower of Jesus, your fundamental identity is two words, in Christ. That's your fundamental identity, in Christ. That's who you are, in Christ. It trumps everything. And if I'm in Christ, there can be no possibility of a hierarchy of people, can there? Now think about it. How could I see myself as more important than someone who's in Christ? How can you get higher than in Christ? I mean, seriously, tell me anything that can outrank that. You've got to be an idiot to think that you have anything in your life you can look to to outrank anybody else who's in Christ. You either know nothing about Christ or nothing about this world if you think you do. <clears throat> Equally, how can I see myself as a loser and lacking in value compared to others if I am in Christ? How could I, how could I underrank other people if I'm in Christ? It dwarfs every other identity. And it robs us of pride and insecurity. It's really came, but it is a challenge for us. This really came home to me when I became a ministry intern. I realised about four or five months into being an intern that when I heard myself answering questions and realised I was saying the same thing, when people asked what I did, I never said I worked for my church. I said I used to be a lawyer. Because that's a really 
valued profession in our culture. And I didn't want people to think I was just a church worker. How terrible if people didn't realise that I used to be a lawyer. Utterly pathetic. But my sense of identity was built on, I want other people to value me, and, and I've got this ranking in my mind. And I thought, gosh, this is ridiculous. But how liberating to realise I don't need to find my identity in work. I'm in Christ. Frankly, who cares what other people think? God views me as in Christ. And why would I think any less of myself or other people? According to what we do in our day jobs. It kills pride and insecurity once we realise that we're in Christ. So don't look down on others and please don't look down on yourself either. God gave you your abilities and your opportunities. So how can you take pride in work when it's a gift? The Sage of Omaha is uh, the nickname of Warren Buffett, who was at one time the, the richest man in the world, uh, worth, I don't know how many billions at his height, but once you're worth billions, who really cares? Nobody, except the billionaires who really care, um, uh, who's worth more. Um, but he, um, in some ways, he's quite a humble man, um, Warren Buffett. He was interviewed about his wealth, and he, uh, he talks quite well about, look, you know, I just happen to be good at this job. And he said, I've done well because I was born at a time and in a place when the ability to pick investments is a skill that is heavily rewarded. Had I been born at another time, I would probably have been lunch for a saber-toothed tiger because the sage of Omaha isn't very good at running or climbing trees. <laughs> I think that's beautifully humble. Then look, God gave you your abilities and your opportunities. You just happen to live at a time and in a place where either your particular thing is valued or not valued. But that's, that's neither here nor there. So don't take pride or feel insecure about your work status. You're in Christ. Now, we might not think in this room that we do look down on those with, quote, inferior jobs. But as I was reflecting on this, it did make me just have some uncomfortable moments thinking, who do we pursue friendships with? When we meet new people at church and we've exhausted the, the initial, um, how, have you been here for long, 12 years, oh dear, <laughs> nice to just meet you. <laughs> uh, the, uh, you've exhausted the, the initial conversation and you find out what the person does. And then the, the conversation moves on. And then the next week you see the same person. How tragic if without thinking we decide who to invest our time in, who to get to know better by what they do. Because the truth is, for all of us, there are certain jobs that impress us and others that just don't. And we can value people accordingly and invest our time with those we think are worth getting to know and just not explicitly be rude to, but just not give the time to people who we just don't think are as important. I think there is a necessary word of rebuke. I think I felt it as I thought about this, and I wonder if some of us do too in this room. Others of us probably need a word of encouragement, not rebuke, because the truth is that Christchurch Mayfair, there's lots of us who are ordinary, but there are some quite high flyers in the church. And it's easy for those who aren't high flyers to feel a little bit useless worthless, perhaps even embarrassed to say what we do or don't do at the moment. And you need to realise God doesn't view you in that way. God doesn't view you like that. He sees no hierarchy of workers. 
he sees you as in Christ. And so no matter what you do, God is interested in your work. And God is glorified and honoured as you offer what you do to him. There is no hierarchy of workers. That's a liberating truth. But it is a half-truth because there is a hierarchy of work. See, just as 1 Corinthians 12 recognises no one is more important than anyone else in church, it does go on in verse 31 of chapter 12 to talk about greater gifts. And as you look at chapter 14 in particular, you see those are the gifts that have impact, a greater impact on the community health. So in particular, it says prophecy, clear teaching of God's word, is just more useful than speaking in tongues, which people can only understand with an interpreter. So he says, pursue the things that are useful to others. Why? Well, love for God, love for other people, that's going to drive that. And so I do think one of the implications of that when you step outside of church is that although we can't speak of a hierarchy of workers, you can actually speak of a hierarchy of work so long as you're very, very careful. And I have to say, I'm much more comfortable speaking about this at a weekend than on a Sunday because there's time for misunderstandings. And, oh, surely you didn't mean that. And to chew it over over lunch and to talk and pray about it until we work out what we really mean. Now, this brings us back to, to Matthew 22. All of life should be driven by love for God and love for neighbour. And the truth is that some work is more useful to my neighbour than other work. It just is. See, not all work loses its vanity when it's done for Christ. I remember uh, talking to a guy who worked uh, for a, a big global tobacco firm and his first job was perfectly legal, which was handing out free cigarettes uh, to teenagers in Cairo so that they would, um, want, they would buy this particular brand of cigarettes. It was perfectly legal. You've got to say, in all the realm of things you could do in the world, it's probably not the most useful thing to... I mean, it, this guy wasn't a Christian, uh, and he wasn't sort of bragging about it. He was, he was saying, you know, it's not the most useful career, is it, really? You see, motivation and dedication aren't always enough. I'm not thinking about things a Christian shouldn't do, like being a hitman or, a, um, uh, or something like that, but how do you choose between things you can legally do We'll think a little bit more about this tom tomorrow, about um, you know, where the ethical challenges of work come. But, but how do you choose between things that are perfectly legitimate? Because the truth is, we can say all work is equal, but we know that actually some work is more useful than others. Um, Liz, I think, really helpfully um, pointed this out at the, the women's breakfast recently. She said, look, Churchill was a brilliant, really genuinely pretty good watercolour painter. And he could have spent the war painting watercolours and say all work, is, all work is equal. Or he could have been the, the galvanising, uniting force of the resistance to Nazi tyranny. One of those is just more useful at that point in, the, in, in human history. Now, you've got to be so, so careful here. It's so easy to be misheard. Don't forget what we learned earlier. All honest, moral work that is done for God brings him glory. No caveats, no asterisks, no exceptions. And all work helps contribute to the governing of this world and all workers are God in disguise. But some work can be more useful than others. So as a lawyer, I was involved in, uh, within a few months, uh, doing some work which uh, 
brought, um, it, we secured reparations for the families of Romanian Jews who'd had all their assets taken by the pro-Nazi Romanian regime in the Second World War. And we did the, the legal research, which helped ensure they got stuff back. And then helped um, a large, um, another large global tobacco firm um, not get prosecuted for a, a customs violation that they, I don't think they'd done, and we helped them uh, not get done. Now, both were legal. Neither was a shady thing, but one was just obviously more useful, actually. And the question, therefore, is what is the most useful thing I can do as I seek to love God and love others with the abilities and opportunities God has given me? Now, I can't discover the cure for cancer. I don't have the brains, I don't have the background, and I don't have the skills. So I'm not talking about what's the most useful thing that I wish I could do. It's what's the most useful thing I can do. And I mustn't compare myself to other people. It is what, what can I do? What has God equipped me for? Now this, I think, leads inevitably to the whole area of ambition, which is a word with which Christians have a slightly ambivalent relationship. But we need to recover it. There's a very good book by Dave Harvey, uh, not the one from church, another Dave Harvey called um, uh, Ambition. And it's a good book about what, what it means to be an ambitious Christian. We should be ambitious in as much as we mean seeking to maximize the gifts and abilities we have to love our neighbor and serve others and glorify God. It's interesting. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3, 1, anyone who aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. He doesn't say... Look, don't offer yourself to be a church leader. You know, it's, the church elders should recognize you and invite you. And he says you should aspire to it. You should want to do it. Why is that? Well, when you look through 1 Timothy, the church is in real danger from false teaching. And he says, look, the church will stand or fall depending on whether godly people are willing to step up to be leaders and to resist and to galvanize the church against false teaching. It'll remain vulnerable without the godly men who offer themselves for, for church leadership. And so we should be ambitious. The parable of the talents, Matthew 25, primarily it's about the gospel. But it must apply more broadly as God says, don't just bury, bury your talent in the ground, make use of it. I mean, the, I do think it's primarily about the gospel. You know, don't just stay silent as a Christian. But obviously the principle applies more broadly. Seek to be useful in the world. Ambition must be driven by love for God and others and grounded in personal humility, not the desire for status or power. But if you can, you can, as you, shape, influence your team, your organisation, then great, step up. There's nothing wrong with thinking, actually, I'd like to, I'd like to lead this team. I think, actually, I can help. I can help make life better for the individuals here. I think actually I can improve the performance of this, this sector of our company. And, and actually, you know, it'll, it'll help people if I do that. There's nothing wrong with thinking that, so long as it's grounded in personal humility. You know the Peter Principle? In any given hierarchy, so the Peter Principle goes, you will rise to the level of your incompetence because you do a good job, you get promoted. You do a good job in that particular responsibility, you get promoted. You do a good job there, you get promoted. 
you're useless at that. It's you're out of your depth. So you just stay where you are, continuing to do an incompetent job. So, so the cynical Peter principle goes, we all in a hierarchical organization rise to the level of our incompetence. Be willing to step up, but also be willing to recognize, look, I've bitten off more, more than I can chew and step back. Or be willing to acknowledge, you know what, I would love to do this and I think it's a really strategic thing to do. I don't think actually I'm the right person. I don't think I've got the strength to lead these people. Or I don't think I've got the skills to do that. Or I don't think I've got the circumstances of life that mean that at a moment I could do what's necessary to actually do that job. That's all right. Given what we saw in the first talk, God is equally honoured by being a worker as being a manager. It doesn't matter. You don't become more or less important depending on what job you do. Managers aren't better than juniors in God's eyes. So don't seek promotion if it's about prestige. Strive for humble ambition. Seek to use all you can to do, seek to use all that you have to do all you can for the glory of God and the good of others. Okay? Okay, let's get specific then. And this does bring us to 1 Corinthians 7 and talk of calling. Should I change job? Should I take this job or another job? So flick up uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and uh, we'll dive in at verse 17. And here, Paul does use the language of calling and vocation when discussing work. It's the one place in the Bible that you really see that. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. But as you read through the passage, it's very clear that Paul's not speaking about an inner sense that you discern and pursue, but rather a recognition that God has placed you where you are. In other words, what you'll see as we look through this passage is it's, this is about contentment where you are, not guidance for where you might go next. So uh, you could summarise Paul's teaching as stay because unless. It's actually a passage mainly about singleness and marriage, but Paul goes on to apply the principles to circumcision and slavery, which is as close as we get to employment in the New Testament too. And for many of us, it doesn't feel like a big, uh, big stretch. So stay because unless. <laughs> so verse 17, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. I'm not sure how you could do that anyway. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Though if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Don't become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. There you go. Paul's big point very simply, stay where you are. Stop obsessing about changing your circumstances if that's the biggest issue in life. Stay. Because, because you don't need to change your circumstances to honour God. Verse 19. Keeping God's commands is what counts. And you can do that single, married, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave free. 
you can serve him just as well wherever you are in that sense. So stay where you are, because God has called you to that station, verse 17. And then when he speaks of calling in verse 22, it's not about work or relational status, but about the gospel. See, the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. That is our calling again and again. The New Testament language of call, 99% of the time, is about God calling you to put your trust in Jesus Christ to be saved. Other than 1 Corinthians 7 verse 17, which is the only time you get it used in this context of he's called you. But again, it's God has called you to the position where you're in. That's our calling. Trust Christ, serve him where you are. Now, Martin Luther says much the same thing. People assume that because he writes about calling and uses the word calling or vocation, he must mean the same thing we mean, an inner sense that draws me to this particular career. But for him, calling was something else. It was about your attitude to the position in life in which you found yourself. Calvin actually is closer to the modern ideas, but again, he doesn't use the language. Luther writes, faith is of the firm conviction that God governs all alike, places each one in the lot that is most useful and suitable for him, and that it could not be better arranged even if he did it himself. Be content where you are, because you can serve God where you are just as well as where you want to be. Stay because, unless. Hmm. So if we can serve God wherever we are, and we should see our circumstances given by God, does that mean we should never seek to change job or career? No. Verse 21. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain freedom, do so. It's okay for a slave to seek freedom, just as he says earlier in the chapter. It's okay if you're married uh, later in the chapter, if you're single to seek marriage. Um, it's fine. Uh, but he says, look, as long as you understand it's not the biggest thing, it's fine to seek another job. Just don't think it's the biggest thing. So the one New Testament passage where calling is discussed in connection with work, it's about contentment in your circumstances, not guidance for your choices. It's about contentment in your circumstances, not guidance for your choices. It's not about educated, mobile Western Christians hunting for a job that is the perfect combination of, of usefulness to the needs of the world and exercise of my gifts and passions. So I have to say that I wouldn't use the language of vacation and calling for our work. Whether you're in full-time gospel ministry or you're working in the retail sector. I just don't think it's the way the Bible really talks about it. Uh, especially in the States, there's a much stronger culture of speaking in that way. And the truth is, lots of the guys who we know who use it, like Tim Keller, they they frame it with so many helpful things about uh, pursuing God first and not being idolatrous that it doesn't end up being unhelpful what they say at all. But I just think it it's just not the way the Bible speaks. There is not... I don't think there is a biblical foundation for speaking of that sense of subjective vocational calling as something that is normal for Christians. And so those of you who are able to invest your time in looking for a, a career that's fulfilling, those of you who have options because of your, the skills God has given you, the education God gave you, the opportunities God gave you, you need to recognise that is the privilege of the very few, not the experience or even the possibility for the great many. And so if you want to talk about seeking a job you're passionate about and feel is really worthy, then that's fine. And that's good if you can. But try to use Bible words in a Bible way. I would say don't call it 
calling or vocation. Biblically speaking, your calling, your vocation, is the place you find yourself right now and serving Christ wholeheartedly there. You see, that you work and how you work is more important than that you fulfil your potential. You don't owe it to yourself to find a job you love. You owe it to God to serve him and others to the best of your abilities. Okay, so how on earth should I decide what to do? How should I choose a job? Uh, four things, ability, affinity, opportunity, and utility. They're, this is the, simple, the simplest way, I think, of summarising the Bible's teaching. Ability, can I actually do it? <laughs> and it's okay to try stuff. There's nothing in the Bible that says you must stay in the safe zone. It's okay to try things and to realise I bit off more than I could chew. Uh, I was a bit overambitious and didn't quite work out. That's all right to try, so long as you're not just driven by personal ambition for your prestige. Uh, affinity. Do I want to do it? It's okay to ask that question, so long as you recognise two things. One, you're looking for a job, not a hobby. If you love it that much, you probably won't get paid to do it. Uh, there are very few people who are able to do that. Very, very, very few. It's an illusion, a chimera, to, to think that that's the norm, or that's what we should expect, that we'll find something we absolutely love and that we'll get paid to do. To even ask the question, do I want this job? makes you a phenomenally privileged person. Uh, opportunity. Uh, it's all right to consider that. Gosh, this is a unique opportunity. I don't think it'll come around again. Um, I am. Uh, this is a stage in life when I can do this. I might not be able to do it again. It's all right to consider those sorts of things. It's fine. And utility. This is what we've been trying to, to raise the bar on. Of all the things I can do, what is the most useful? What is the most useful? But of, of course, make sure that this is a broad discussion. Work isn't the only thing in life. So think, what impact would this have on my other commitments? It might be a really useful thing, but it'll be the only thing I can do. It'll be so all-consuming that it would rule out faithfulness to family and church and other things. So think about utility, but think of it broadly. Would this be a useful thing for me? in my circumstances to do. It's okay to think about money. Uh, you are at work there in part to earn money, Ephesians 4.28 says. Uh, just don't be driven by love for money, 1 Timothy 6, 6-10. And of course, the ultimate utility is the gospel because it's eternally useful. Uh, J.D. Greer in his book, Above All, says, what if we made our primary consideration in where we pursue our careers where we can be used in the mission of God. Lots of factors go into where we choose to pursue our career, where the money is good, where our extended family lives, where we want to live, and all these are valid. But why wouldn't the kingdom of God be the largest factor? Let me ground it with a few examples. Uh, I think of B, who uh, did a very undemanding job that certainly didn't use her full potential but it meant she had huge amounts of time and energy in reserve and was able to basically be an unpaid staff member at her church. And that was, that was a sensible decision. I think, on the other hand, of Jay, who, who was quite not very career ambitious, but took on a management role to get uh, control in a school of something very strategic, uh, looking after the kids, teaching on uh, PSHCE or whatever they call it, the um, uh, 
citizenship and sexual health and those sorts of things. And so I thought, actually, I don't really want to do this, but actually it's important. And so I did that. Uh, I think about M, who took on uh, a very high profile partner's job at a city law firm um, and the sort of job lots of people idolise. But from day one, advertised and ran. They've moved to a couple of different firms. Uh, Christianity explored courses and invited the whole department um, because they wanted to be useful and they wanted to make sure that work wasn't an idol. I think of, um, of a guy who's a mission partner at this church who heard a talk about the parable of the talents. thought, how can I be of most use? And so has moved to North Africa to help um, do internet evangelism, which is a, a massive growth area, enabling to, to reach into Muslim communities. I think about uh, a lady at a church where I grew up called Sandra, a very bright lady, uh, who was going to become a doctor, but realised that for the missions work she wanted to do in Africa, in Zambia, actually she'd have much more flexibility if she remained a nurse. And so she, in, in worldly eyes, took a status cut and worked as a nurse so that she could be more useful on the mission field rather than being a doctor. Lots of different ways to work these things out. You think of all of life, not just career, but we should be thinking... How can I be most useful, given what I've got? Okay, where do we land? If you're a Christian, your fundamental identity is in Christ, not in work, as important as work is. If you're a Christian, your fundamental calling is to obey Christ where you are. If you're a Christian, your fundamental mission is to use all you have to do all you can for the glory of God and the good of others. I don't know if uh, you've got a purpose statement for your life, but uh, while preparing these talks, I was at um, a conference which was held in an old church building. And in uh, one of the slightly dull sessions, my eyes sort of wandered over the, the monuments on the wall. And I saw the following poem on a memorial. It marked the grave of a military chaplain who was decorated for bravery in the First World War. And this was the motto by which the Reverend Jeffrey Studdart Kennedy Military Cross lived. To give and give and give again what God has given thee, to spend thyself nor count the cost, to serve right gloriously the God who made all worlds that are and all that are to be. Or as we've been putting it, seek to use all you have to do all you can for the glory of God and the good of others. I hope you realise this is not a burden. It is a privilege. God has given you gifts. And he just wants you to have the privilege of being able to use them in his world. God doesn't want you to try to become somebody else. He wants you to enjoy flourishing with what he has given you in the opportunities he has placed you. That's our calling. Let's pray. Our Father God, as we uh, think through these complicated things, we pray that you would give us clarity. We pray that you would give us at our heart that wonderful liberation that comes from knowing we're in Christ. We pray that you would give us uh, a desire to obey Christ where you've put us. We pray that you give us the contentment that knows that actually where you've put us is the best place for us to be right now. And we praise you, Father, that you uh, give us gifts, that we might be useful in this world. And so we pray that 
we would long to and would delight to, uh, to, to seek to use all we have, all you've entrusted to us, to do all we can for your glory and the good of others, that we might hear your commendation, well done, my good and faithful servant. Amen.